Well, I'm delighted to be with you guys. Uh, it's nice to be able to join you while you while we reflect together on uh, some of the things we have here. But if if indeed, and I hope it does, some of the conversations we might have take a path that help us reflect on our journey in light of what Paul's talking about. That's kind of, uh, I think that's always the goal. Um, and it seems like it's one of the goals for Paul as well. So let me just tell you a little bit about what we're going to cover. Um, a, a lot of the content will come from Thessalonians. As Brad and I talked, I mentioned a moment ago, I, I have a book on Thessalonians. I spent a lot of time in Thessalonians. But it, it draws from all of Paul's letters and Paul's experience. And so at the center of Paul's life, is Jesus, and specifically the gospel, and how the gospel comes to bear on our lives, and how the gospel makes a difference. And I'll tell you, I, that's become a very important thing for me um, in my own preaching, in my own life, at the church I was pastor at. But there's a, there's a reason why I grew up <clears throat> a Baptist in North Georgia, and the church I grew up in was very revivalistic. It was very, I, I could say evangelistic, but evangelism is not quite what, uh, I, what they did for evangelism is not quite what I came to believe evangelism should look like. But the notion was, and it was not just, it, it was not just assumed. What I mean by that is that I didn't just catch it. It was spoken that the gospel is for those who aren't Christians. For those who haven't believed, that's what the gospel's for. And when you become a Christian, you move on to something else. Now, that something else wasn't always articulated in the church I grew up in because they were always worried about getting somebody to become a Christian. And so I grew up thinking that the gospel was for non-believers, and I'm kind of left to figure out how I do this thing with life and Jesus and the law or whatever else the commands are. And then... In the process of studies in college and coming to a more reformed understanding of Scripture and reading, actually, Calvin and Luther, uh, I come, came to realize the gospel's for Christians. <laughs> that the gospel is for, for us as believers, as men striving to follow Jesus and lead our families. And without that gospel, there's no hope in terms of your daily life. And so... I have a quote here um, from Tim Keller to start us off as we look at this, and, and we'll keep coming back to some of these themes. Keller says, it's at the very beginning of uh, the study, the gospel, if it is really believed, removes neediness, the need to be constantly respected, appreciated, and well-regarded, the need to have everything in your life go well, the need to have power over others, all these great deep needs continue to control you only because the concept of the glorious God delighting in you with all his being is just that, a concept and nothing more. Our hearts don't believe it, so they operate in default mode. Paul is saying that if you want to really change, you must let the gospel teach you, that is, train, discipline, coach you over a period of time. You must let the gospel argue with you. You must let the gospel sink down deeply into your heart until it changes your motivation and views and attitudes. 
it was those things in my life the need to be constantly respected, the need to be appreciated, the need to be well-regarded, the need to have everything in my life go well, the need to have power. It was all those things I was struggling with as a Christian. And I thought, okay, I just need to deal with these and stop them. All those things I still struggle with as a Christian. And it was, it was a major shift to realize the gospel spoke to those things. And what I think is at the core for Paul, and we'll see this through the whole study, but what I think is at the core is all of us, and, and I find this so helpful, if, if, if we, if you guys as leaders in your church, actually have the time to sit around together and be honest about your life and where you're at and your fears and your struggles, we all live with stories that we tell ourselves in our head. Humans function out of storytelling. And we have to interpret the way our life goes. And so you have something that happens that's a very difficult situation when you're growing up as a child. Uh, You face a hard time. And you ever wonder why your mind, when it kicks back into neutral or faces another obstacle, goes back to a teenage moment or a childhood moment It's because we're still living out of a story that we faced back then about who we are. And I have a close friend who tells me his dad was was an addict, was was drunk, and it, it was very difficult to overcome the loss of a relationship that he had with his father through the years as he grew up in the ministry. But his mom would go back to very harmful things his father would say to him about not being any good. Why is it that that's the case? That's the very nature of the way we function. And yet Paul, in articulating the gospel, is going to show us a different story because we're being drawn into a story that reshapes our identity in Jesus because of the gospel. And so it's uh, (laughs) cognitive behaviorists these days think they've stumbled onto something by calling it story editing when they counsel people and tell people in their therapy sessions, you're still living out a story from your teenage years. You've got to edit that story and rewrite it. It's exactly what Paul says when he says in Colossians 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with God in Christ. It's a different story. And his constant attempt is to draw these people into the story. So let's take Thessalonians as an example as we look at it. In Acts 17... Paul comes into Thessalonica to plant this church. And and we'll read it in a moment because it's going to be on your study guide. I'm going to come to it under the mission section of Paul's experience. Jumping ahead just a little bit. But I want to highlight this overarching theme at the beginning. Paul comes in. These believers, these people embrace the gospel. And there's a guy named Jason in chapter 17 who gets thrown into jail. Now, just think about it for a moment. If you get thrown into jail, that's a bad story, right? If we end up in jail for some foolish thing we do at this cabin, that's a very bad story. So this Jason believes in Jesus. He gets thrown in jail because it it turns the town upside down. And yet when Paul writes this letter back to this church, he tells him to, to count it joy, basically, 
for suffering for Christ. That's a completely different way to view that story. And, and that's what Paul calls us to in all of his letters. So the overarching idea that I hope that we come away with is that this notion of the gospel is, is an attempt by God through the work of Jesus to reshape our identity so that when we minister, we minister out of fullness and not need. That we're not doing it because we need somebody's approval. And we'll see that as Paul works through this because Paul's very clear about that being the nature of ministry. So let's start um, with Paul's experiences. Imitating Paul in the work of faith. Three aspects of Paul's experiences that I want to highlight. Uh, One is his conversion. Uh, We all know those stories in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. Um, The key point here that I want to highlight from his conversion is this aspect in Acts 9, 3 through 5. Suddenly, while traveling to Damascus, just before he reached the city, there came a light from heaven all around him. He fell to the ground. This is Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, that's Hebrew name, uh, Greek name Paul. He asked, who are you, Lord? And the voice answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's Acts 9, 5. Jesus says, now notice, why are you persecuting me? Now, I, I think Paul must have pondered when he had that experience with Jesus. Why did he say, why are you persecuting me? I'm not doing anything to him. I'm doing it to these people who are believers. And so Paul comes away from this conversion experience with a new theological grid. If you'll notice in Galatians, if if we've looked in Galatians chapter 1, he tells the story that after this conversion experience, he goes off into the desert of Arabia for about three years. Paul goes on a retreat of solitude, if you will. And, And I think what he does is that his story up until meeting Jesus was, according to Philippians 3, a Pharisee of Pharisees. The greatest of, he considered himself one of the most righteous of men. And he, he leveraged that righteousness to go after the Christians and throw them in jail. And so he was not expecting to come face to face with this Jesus. And when Jesus decided to appear to, appear to him on the road to Damascus, he turned Paul's whole view of the Old Testament upside down. Because Paul would never have believed that the promised Messiah was a crucified Messiah. That's exactly why he was going after them. So not only in that experience does Jesus reconfigure and reorient his thought process about who the Messiah is, but the core of what the Messiah does is death and resurrection. He dies and he's raised later. And that pattern of death and resurrection becomes Paul's pattern of ministry and growth. Your greatest growth moments come in the suffering. 
Those are the moments at which God is at work. And here's why I think that is. I think we don't listen very well till we suffer. When I'm not suffering, I think I've got it all together. And I think I've got it all figured out. And when I have it figured out, I'm not listening to God. It, it, that suffering that Paul experienced, because in the conversion experience, God tells, God tells uh, uh, Ananias in Damascus, I think, wasn't it, that Paul comes to, he says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. And it's almost as if God has to keep us on the edge of our comfort zone for real change to happen. Otherwise, we just play. And we just kind of keep building whatever we're building. And so that conversion experience for Paul is not just in, in my, the tradition I grew up with, a typical evangelistic altar call where it's like, okay, come pray a prayer and believe on Jesus. This is a life-shattering, altering event where now the one that Paul thought could never be the Messiah is the Messiah. So he goes off for several years to rethink his whole theology. It's the kind of experience that I felt like I had whenever the notion of Reformed theology, in particular God's sovereignty, came crashing down on me. I'd read the Bible before and I thought that I knew what I was talking about in the tradition I grew up in, and then all of a sudden, Romans 8 and 9 hit me one day. And after reading that, I didn't read the Bible the same again ever. It was a completely different story after that. And so for Paul, when that experience happens, Jesus reconfigures his whole view of the Old Testament. The other thing he does in that expression is Jesus reconfigures his notion of community. He said, why are you persecuting me? And so in seed form, in that conversion experience, you have the whole notion of the body of Christ. If a member of the body is suffering, they're connected to Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. That seed becomes the full-blown theology of the corporate body of Christ and how everyone's connected. And so part of what Paul does when he goes to Thessalonica is help them see they're not in this story by themselves. They're connected to Jesus and him and others. Part of the Reformation, or maybe reorientation would have been a better term there, um, in Galatians 1 was that uh, three-year retreat in Arabia. Um, and, and spending time meditating and reflecting on what this means now that this Jesus is really the Messiah. The other thing that you have, let's say Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council, or any of them, I mean, we could look anywhere in Paul's letters, there's a complete reorientation towards grace. There's a new notion that grace is really at the core of the faith. And I think without that, we stumble back into our own attempts to solve things. And so, for Paul, as he starts to understand that, 
that becomes one of the specific conflicts with Peter even in the book of Galatians that we're about to look at. So that reorientation is a constant reorientation for the whole scope of his life. And, and I think that that's part of what ministry truly does. Ministry, in my view now, is not making sure everything goes smoothly all the time so nothing, so, so we don't hit the bumps. It's sometimes living on the edges of what the comfort zone is so that you actually see God's grace at work, so that you actually see God's love at work. So you're actually forced to love someone and deal with someone that you normally wouldn't deal with. I've had, I have people in my church tell me, well, I don't, I don't know that I would be close friends with any of these people if it weren't for this church. And I go, that's exactly the point. That this is a group of people who normally wouldn't be friends, who normally wouldn't be drawn to each other, who have different personalities and different experiences and different families, and yet what makes it work is Jesus and the grace that he brings to us. And then that third point for uh, mission, I, I, I already uh, jumped ahead of myself a moment ago when I was introducing this to you. I'm going to read from Acts 17 so that you get the background of the establishment of this church in Thessalonica. Um, so as Paul's traveling around on his missionary journeys, he comes to Thessalonica. It's a synagogue there. You guys probably know that as he travels to each of these cities, he starts at a synagogue because in the providence and sovereignty of God in, in, in history, when the Jews were dispersed from their homeland, they ended up establishing synagogues all across the land, and it was an, an immediate church plant opportunity for Paul when the gospel went out. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days, three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now see, just there we see some of the beginnings of what we saw in his conversion experience that this Jesus is the one who had to suffer and be raised from the dead. He is the Messiah. And some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, the ESV, ESV says, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities. Now, there's a little bit of background here with the terminology in this chapter. The city authorities are the, uh, they're kind of like magistrates who helped lead the people in worship. But the worship that they would have led the people in was the imperial cult of the Roman Empire. And that would have been when the city gathered together for their festivities or their celebrations and they celebrated their Greek gods or their Roman gods or whatever it was. The greatest of all the gods was Caesar. And that's why you would say, hell, Lord, Caesar. Which is why I might add, Paul says in Romans 10, that you confess Jesus as Lord. His wording in Romans 10 is a death sentence because you have two choices. You confess Caesar is Lord or you die. And so when this erupts, the city authorities know that this has traveled from town to town and this mission activity is turning places upside down. And so they say in the very next sentence, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also 
Jason's received them. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. That message created problems in the Roman Empire that eventually cost Paul his life. So they were disturbed about these things, and then they took Jason into custody, but eventually they took money as security from Jason and the rest, and then they let him go. Paul and Silas, in verse 10, slip away by night to Berea and go to the next town. And so that beginning establishment of the church there starts not only with a message, but with affliction and suffering. And that becomes a prominent theme in the, in the epistle, where Paul talks about the affliction and suffering that you face. And so one of the stories that he pushes on these Christians to edit in their, story, in their life is that affliction and suffering are not judgments from God that you've done something wrong. You may have actually just embraced the truth. And it may be the case that you end up suffering because of the truth. And so when Paul establishes that church in uh, Thessalonica, that mission... The thing that they leave with is that these people are turning the world upside down <laughs> in verse 6. All right, so that's just a quick overview of some of the key aspects of Paul's experiences. When I was growing up in the church that I grew up in, the experiences of uh, characters in the Bible, Paul or whoever, that was kind of the main thing. It was always about um, be like that person or follow this pattern. And so that's what I said a moment ago. The gospel didn't really come to bear on my life until later. It was a, a life-transforming experience when I realized that Paul was a theologian too, not just someone who had trusted Jesus, but that he is actually someone who reflects a theological aspect of the Christian life that goes very deep with deep roots. And so for just a moment, I want us to turn to uh, Paul's theology and articulate and look at the centrality of the gospel and think through that for just a moment. There's a little chart there at the beginning of Paul's theology that I use. Um, actually came from one of my professors at RTS, Knox Chamberlain. Um, he, he had a book on Paul and the self. And that book was extremely helpful to me because it helped me understand that when Paul is writing these letters, yes, he's writing and talking out of his experience because the whole letter is full of experience. It's full of his experience in Thessalonica. He tells them about his experience in Berea. It's all about how he's viewing his experiences. And that process of understanding his experiences is part of his theology. And yet, his experience in theology, his mission theology, are, are both part of an aspect in which Paul is not an emotionally bankrupt person. Now, I'll tell you, in my personal life, I went from being, being in a church that was extremely emotional, and that was the main, I mean, it was very much almost a charismatic Baptist church is what it was in, in North Georgia. 
I don't know if you've ever been to one of those, but that's, uh, there's a book that was on the New York Times bestseller list for a while, um, Salvation on Sand Mountain, I think was the title, but it was a snake handling book because that, some of those churches up there are snake handlers. Uh, we actually, the, the company that I work with actually got the photo archive of uh, the uh, Alabama Media Group that was uh, located in Birmingham. And sure enough, in the process of going through those photos, I found a folder of snake handlers where they sent a reporter out to go around and take the pictures of the snake handlers in these churches. So I go through this experience of a deeply emotional uh, Christian faith, but not much content. And so when I came to the theological side of Paul, I thought, well, I found the key to life. It's how much I should know. And so I go on this quest, and a lot of uh, us reform types who went to seminary and, and did this would never admit this, mm-hmm. but most of my life in seminary was a quest to learn all that I could because knowledge was the key to spiritual growth. Knowledge is only a small part of spiritual growth, and even intellectual knowledge, I have learned, is only a small part of knowledge that you end up with when it comes to how you intuit things and such. So that shift to Paul's theology is not a shift that leaves behind experience and not a shift that leaves behind that emotional side of the faith. And so this chart here was helpful because Paul brings to bear his his reason, his emotion, and his will. All three aspects. His, His intellect, his affections, and his gut, if you will, his 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 will. Those three aspects of Paul all form his letters. And so when he writes his letters, those three aspects, which are the three basic elements of, of our life, those three aspects end up being informative, effective, or directive. In other words, when Paul speaks with his reason and intellect and informs them of these things, he's in, informing them about certain aspects of theology and belief. And then there's an effective element, the emotional side, and then there's a directive element that instructs them on what to do. And then it circles back to the reader who has that same aspect as Paul as a human of reason, emotion, and will. Now, it's not a straight-up parallel, but in our third session, I'm going to circle back around and highlight for you in Thessalonians that Paul uses that famous virtue triad of faith, love, and hope twice in Thessalonians. Now, uh, many times we think it just happens in Corinthians. We're actually going to see that it happens in several of Paul's letters. But I was surprised when I did my study on Thessalonians to discover it twice in Thessalonians. And what I think Paul does here is he sets up, and this is a long-standing tradition in the Christian faith, where not only do you try to understand a text for what it says in the Bible, but you try to understand what you're supposed to believe about the text, what you're supposed to do with it, and what you're supposed to hope or anticipate from it. Those three things are faith, love, and hope. And I think in the book of Thessalonians, you could outline the structure of it by looking at chapter 1 as the, the element of the way faith was established there. Chapters 2, 3, and almost into 4 are this element of love and Paul's ministry, his life, the things he does, the things he wants them to do. And then the book ends with this stuff on the second coming 
and community that's about hope. I think those elements are elements related to the way Paul writes and the way we function as believers, as humans, and which is what the gospel is penetrating. So I put this here because as we talk about the gospel, I'm not just talking about an intellectual assent to the gospel. I'm talking about an affection in your heart, a love that also directs your will to actually obey. So it's all three components in the gospel. And the reason why, a reason why that's important, especially as a group of men, as we look at some of these passages and talk about them, is that true change happens when all three of those are engaged, not just one. And many Presbyterian churches are really good on the reason side. We're very good at information exchange. But information does not produce transformation. Transformation happens when the root love of your heart is transformed. And it flows out from there. And so when we talk about the centrality of the gospel, we're talking about all three aspects in your life. And Paul's like that, we'll see. So a couple of points from Paul's principles here, uh, from Paul's theology. Uh, And of course, there's all kinds of things we can talk about. There are books written about this, but I want to go back to the issue of the gospel. So the centrality of the gospel in Paul's thought, I, I, I reference 1 Corinthians 15 here because universally with scholars, that passage is considered like a creedal statement of the gospel, a condensed understanding of what the gospel is. And Paul uses this language, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. That language of first importance is highlighting this is the key to the message. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. That death, burial, resurrection pattern is the core gospel. And this is what I learned in in the course of my life. The gospel is, first of all, the gospel means good news. And so it's, first of all, news. It's a historical event that happened whether or not you believe it. Your belief will not change whether that event event happened. That event took place, and it's established for all of history. What makes it good is not only the message of it, that the king has come and he took your place on the cross, but that that's for you and for me and for those who embrace it. And so the centrality of the gospel of first importance is where that starts. And then I move from there to this principle that comes out of Galatians 2.14. And I've seen this in numerous writings, so this is by no means original. Um, Martin Luther, uh, I have a quote here that we'll look at in just a moment, but the Galatians 2.14, Paul says, now this is the passage in Galatians, and now I might also add, 1 Thessalonians or Galatians is one of the first letters Paul wrote. I lean towards 1 Thessalonians maybe because I, I wrote on 1 Thessalonians, but one of those two are the earliest, and, and Galatians has more pop than almost any of his other letters. I mean, you can tell a difference between 
the theological and emotional growth of Paul from Galatians all the way to 2 Timothy, which is probably his last one, where he's acting much more like a father to Timothy. But this is where Peter is fellowshipping with others who, according to Old Testament standards, would not have been kosher, let's say, would not have been doing the right thing. And, and when some came from Jerusalem, Peter steps away, and Paul got on to him. And Paul says, don't do that. And, but now notice how Paul says it. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. In other words, Peter's behavior was not in line with the gospel. That was, from Luther, what changed my perspective on the gospel and made me realize that the gospel was much bigger than what I thought. Because Paul says Peter's behavior was not in line, was not in step with the gospel. So Luther said on that next page, page five, Luther said, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Now that had not been an idea in my head before I discovered this. The gospel was here, and then you had this and this and this. But according to Luther, the gospel is the principle, the, the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. He says, most necessary, and I love this, the way he puts these things. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. It's necessary to beat the gospel into our heads continually, according to Luther. So this principle is a fundamental aspect of how we minister. This is a powerful principle when Paul is dealing with Peter's racial pride, his cowardice, by declaring that Peter is not living in line with the truth of the gospel. And that statement itself shows us that the Christian life is a process of renewing every dimension of our life, our spiritual, our emotional, our intellectual, our corporate, our, our, our relational, social, all those things by thinking, hoping, and living out the gospel the way it's supposed to be. That's what the call of ministry and the call of the Christian life is too to take the gospel and apply it to every area of our thinking, feeling, relating, working, and behaving. Richard Lovelace, another author, said most of our problems are just a failure to be oriented to the gospel, a failure to grasp it and follow it through to where it's going. And so all of the doctrines that we would put under this for Paul in terms of... Um, the, the things that he articulates in all the other passages, uh, all his other epistles, they all fall under the gospel and flow out of that. One of the key aspects we're going to look at uh, tomorrow morning is union with Christ and how union with Christ, that expression that Paul uses more than anything else, uh, is an overflow of the gospel. And that story of being united with Christ is a reshaping of whatever story we're telling ourselves. So the gospel 
is the central article, the principal article of the Christian faith. And let me end this up uh, with Paul's vision. And, I, and I'm pulling this primarily from Thessalonians. Um, there are other passages, for example, in um, Ephesians that talk about um, maturity and growth and other things that we can pull from. But I want to point out three things uh, about Paul's vision that we're going to use in our reflections. First of all, Paul's vision of sharing the gospel and his own self. This comes from 1 Thessalonians 2.8. So then, being affectionately desirous of you, I might point out there he's using the affection word, that he's affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, the word that he spoke, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. That principle right there is consistent in all of Paul's epistles, that when he ministers, he ministers not just out of the words he speaks, but out of the affection of his heart and his actions and behaviors so that he's giving his whole self, mind, heart, and will, or however we would say that. Sometimes I think he says soul to highlight some of those. But he is willing to give himself to these people. Now, of course, I think that comes from that conversion experience where in our theology, Jesus gave himself. So it's the same pattern. The pattern of Jesus and his sacrifice and giving himself is the pattern Paul follows. And that brings me to the second point, the doctrine of imitation. The, the statement there by number two, imitate me as I imitate Christ, comes from 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. But that same doctrine of imitation is in Thessalonians. In fact, it's mentioned twice in Thessalonians. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now I'll use that verse in just a moment for point 3. But then again he says in chapter 2, verse 14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ, in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things. Now, both of those imitation passages move into that next point, number three, of affliction. Because Paul seems like he's willing to say, and I was always, when I was pastoring, it made me very nervous to ever put myself out there and say, you need to watch what I do. I have, since I have passed 40, realize that that is the very nature of manhood and what we're to do as we get older. That we should be following Jesus. And insofar as we follow Jesus, we're able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. See, Paul's not just saying, imitate me because I'm such a good person, or imitate me because I've got all these great ideas, or imitate me because I've got a self-help theology that's going to make, by ten steps, everything work for you. He's saying, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And we know from what we've already seen 
that when he's talking about imitating Christ, he's talking about picking up your cross and following Jesus. He's talking about a sacrificial love. He's talking about that kind of sacrificial life. And in both of those imitation passages in 1 Thessalonians, it moves into the area of affliction. So, you guys have been in ministry and service long enough to know that so much of the work that you do is work that ends up in, in pain sometimes. I, I just spent um, seven weeks at a church in Memphis who's without, they're without a pastor right now. And in the process of preaching those seven weeks and talking to people and sharing with them a couple of people mentioned to me about some of the pains they've experienced when the pastor left. They loved him deeply. There doesn't seem to be any problem. It was just a transition. But even eating lunch with uh, one of the deacons uh, one day, he was sharing with me about, you know, this is the first church I'm serving in. This is the first church this. And it took me by surprise. And the recurring conversation that I've had is how painful sometimes it is in church when things don't go the way you expect them to go. Because you come to church, after you leave the office or you leave the job or you do this and you think, I'm going with our brothers and sisters and we're all bound together by this love and this Jesus and this grace and it's going to be different. And then you find out it's not very different. That you end up with the same pain and the same self-centeredness and the same struggles. And sometimes when you gather together as men in a session and you, you agree, we're going to put everything on the table and we're going to share our life and we're going to do this. And you get three or four years down the road, this is actually something that happened to me with a very close friend of mine. You find out that everything wasn't put on the table in the conversations. I actually have a, 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 had a friend, close friend, who was an elder at my previous church and he was always saying, well, we just need to dump the dump truck right now. We need to get it all out and deal with it. I'm like, yeah, that's what we need to do. We're going to handle it that way. That's how we're going to handle it. After about three or four years of serving together, we discovered from his wife that he hadn't been completely honest about certain things. And then that relationship with his wife got brought to the session and we had to deal with their situation. And it completely took me by surprise. And so you end up in church and serving and sometimes the deepest pain happens in the midst of the ministry that you're trying to do for the people in the church. C.S. Lewis said, those deepest pains are so deep because the love was genuinely real, that there was a genuine love for each other. And that's how life goes. The people who are closest to you, that you love the most, will be the people that hurt you the most. And so Paul, when he talks about imitating Christ, you have to follow the gospel in the imitation, which is both affliction and joy, which is the third point. I think there's a beautiful theology of trials and suffering in Thessalonians based on the narrative in Acts 17 and then some of these passages. 
For example, this one in chapter 1, verse 6 that I have on your outline, where Paul says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I don't know very many people that put those two words beside each other. Like, Paul is weird. He is countercultural. You don't put affliction and joy side by side. But that's the way the apostles do. John does it in Revelation chapter 1. The kingdom and the tribulation are mentioned side by side because that's the nature of this life east of Eden before the final uh, coming. And so Paul wants us to understand and not go into this, not go into this blindly, but to understand that the Christian faith is not a promise that there will be no suffering. The Christian faith is not a promise there will be no affliction or trial. And that was another thing I grew up with. Not only did I catch this second-handed, but it was directly taught from the pulpit in this Southern Baptist church I grew up in that if you obey Jesus and if you follow his laws and if you do these things, then all of your life will go well. You'll be blessed. Now, there's enough stuff in the Bible to get confused on that for some of these guys, but that's not what it says. Not when you, not even in the Old Testament. I mean, that's why Job's there, to make you realize that's not exactly how it goes. And so it took me years to work myself out of the assumption that if I do these things, then I'll be blessed. But then I discovered even after I became a Presbyterian and and Reformed and believed that this was part of it, that there were hidden assumptions in my life about my wife and my marriage and my kids and how we did these things that I thought I was doing well and therefore my kids would turn out this way or my marriage would end up this way. And then I was sharing with you guys at the beginning that my wife... Uh, went through a really hard period of time with suffering and and trials and we went down this medical black hole that you get on whenever you don't know what exactly it is that's happening to you and she went and got diagnosed as fibromyalgia and then lupus and then all the other kind of chronic fatigue stuff that they try to process of elimination and then two years later uh, we had a comprehensive blood panel done and she had several markers for Lyme disease. We got on a different kind of medicine protocol and it actually turned the corner and she was able to really recover from some of the pain that she was experiencing. Through that, there were things that happened in terms of relationships we lost, people we lost touch with, that I never would have imagined would have happened. It's just the way life goes sometimes. And we don't always... This is why grace has to be at the core of our theology. You don't interpret these trials and sufferings as a quid pro quo. If I do this, then this will happen. The Christian faith is not a mathematical formula. It's a relational dynamic that constantly changes. And so that change is part of the growth. As you get pushed to the edge, and you have to reconfigure and rethink what your faith looks like right now. So I put these in here to give us an introduction to the Apostle Paul, to give us uh, some frameworks 
for the session in the morning that we're going to look at in chapter 2 and 3 of Paul's ministry to the church in Thessalonica. And we're going to look at, and I think there are very concrete ways that Paul describes his ministry as being a ministry that flows out of the gospel, that he's living in light of the gospel. And we'll see that in, in that session, how he talks, how he ministered, how he interprets what happened, and then how he handles Timothy and Timothy's ministry to them as well. And so I think we've got uh, the platform set to, to reflect on that in the morning.